So whether or not we use the clickers today or not will depend on what happens when we try to start up the software in a few minutes. Um, we're going to talk today about Newton's laws. We're going to spend the whole day talking about Newton's laws. Um, largely what we do today is not going to be mathematical. It's mostly going to be conceptual. Um, before we start, a couple comments. Uh, first is that there is a room upstairs where free peer tutoring is offered. So physics majors and graduate students provide this tutoring. They're paid by the department, um, not by you. So you can take advantage of that. Um, there's a schedule posted upstairs on the door outside of room 326. So I'll show that schedule on a slide here in a minute. Um, so you can take advantage of that. Also, I want to point out that next Monday is the first midterm. So a couple comments on that. You're allowed a 3 by 5 inch note card. You can write anything you want on that, equations, formulas. Um, I won't give you any equations or formulas. Okay, so if there's something that you think you're going to need as a reference to do problems that are similar in scope to the homework problems, you'll need to include it there. Okay. Um, you will need to be able to take a vector and break it into its components using basic trig identities. I won't require you to know the double angle formula or the law of sines or law of cosines or some of the more um, obscure trig identities. So you don't need to put those onto your, onto your card. There's a practice, practice exam online. Um, when you log into the web page, there's a big uh, folder now called practice exams or something like that. So I suggest you download and try to do the practice exam before you look at the solution. And also, if you're going to do that, time yourself, because it's a 75-minute exam. So rather than just drift through it over the course of a weekend, see how you do if you're actually constrained by the time limits. And then look at the solution. Is the form identity It'll be similar. The exam is the actual exam from the last time I taught the course. So I'm always tweaking my, my exams and my methodology. So I'll probably have a little bit different formula or format, but it's, it's the best approximation I can give you as to what the exam will be like without writing a separate exam right now. Okay. So uh, I promised a little more details on both of these announcements. Um, this may be obvious. You're not allowed to use your cell phone on the exam, so if you normally use that as your calculator, you need to bring a separate calculator. I don't want people having their cell phones out. Likewise, uh, if you like to relax by listening to music during exams, I don't want you listening to your iPod. Um, part of it is I don't know what you're listening to, whether you've got a podcast lectures on there or not or what. So uh, no audio devices, um, no Blackberries, laptops, anything like that. So you can use a graphing calculator, a standard calculator, and your note sheet. I will give you the paper that you need to fill out so you don't need to bring a Scantron or a Blue Book or anything like that. Okay, so just show up with your note card and your calculator that's all you'll need. You'll have the duration of the, the class period, so please be on time, both so that you have the full time and so you're not disrupted for the other people. If you finish early, I would like you to stay for the duration of the class so, you don't, so you're not disruptive. So if you have other things going on that day, you should plan on being here for the full 75 minutes. Any questions? Do you know what chapters One through four. If you turn in your test, you can sit down and listen to your iPod. Yeah. Here's the schedule that I have for tutoring upstairs. I don't think it's complete yet. I think they're still trying to fi 
fill in a few spots, but this gives you an idea of when tutoring is available. And if you know any of these people, um, maybe you'll find that you like a particular tutor. Uh, that's posted upstairs. It's also in the lecture notes, so you can refer to that. I'm not going to leave that up because we're already running late. So I want to talk about Newton's laws. So Sir Isaac Newton was a famous physicist. He's, um, he's the guy who this entire course is based around. If there is one physicist who provided the structure for the laws that we're learning in this course, it was Newton. Um, so a lot of what we're dealing with is how things move. And you can understand how things move by looking at the world around you and observing what's going on. Um, and pretty much before Newton's time, anybody who wanted to understand kinematics, the motion of things, had to kind of figure it out on their own. There was no set structure describing laws um, that you could use to build up your thinking. So Newton provided this, and it was really one of the greatest gifts that he could have given to humanity, was the ability to structure your thinking about how things move, how forces, accelerations, displacements relate to each other. And if we learn Newton's laws, and if we understand Newton's laws, we can go through and we can learn you know, 16 chapters of material in this semester building on this without having to sort of re-derive and rethink about how everything should work every time we come up with a problem that involves motion. Okay, so Newton had three laws. His three laws of motion. The first law, it turns out, is kind of superseded by the second law, but I'll, I'll state it anyways. Newton's first law says, in an inertial reference frame, a body acted on by no net force moves with constant velocity with no acceleration. Okay, so some of that's redundant. Right? Uh, constant velocity implies no acceleration. So this, this is my own wording of Newton's first law. You'll see different wordings of it. You may also see it said that a body at rest will remain at rest unless acted on by an outside force. Or a body in motion will continue to move with constant velocity unless acted on by an outside force. So those are two different interpretations of this. Mathematically, we can write that the net force acting on an object, the term net means when you add up all the different things that are happening. So if we add up, that's what the summation means, if we add up all the forces that act on an object, we get what's called the net force. And if that net force is zero, if all the forces balance, and this week in lab, you'll be doing an experiment where all the forces balance. We said there's no net force. The object's in equilibrium. Okay, an object in equilibrium is one that, if it's at rest, stays at rest. If it's moving, it just keeps moving with the same speed and in the same direction. So nothing very exciting is happening with this object. Okay, we have to clarify a couple things to be very specific here. This says that in an inertial reference frame, can someone remind me what a reference frame is? Hold on, Adriana had a... It's, it's like our initial point, it's like our coordinate system that we're measuring everything with respect to. Um, so we, we talked about that when we did uh, relative velocity last time. So it's like our coordinate system, it's like our base of measuring things. Most things that we measure in the lab are going to be measured in, we call it a laboratory reference frame. Whatever our origin is, is going to be a point that's fixed in the lab. So maybe the, the floor is, we call that a height of zero. 
right? It's, it's arbitrary because if I did the same, if I were, if this classroom were on the third floor, I might choose the floor of the third floor as the height is zero, right? So we can have different reference frames. Um, inertial, you probably haven't heard that term before. Um, really all that means is not accelerating. So if I say the floor is a height of zero, and maybe I'll call that wall x equals zero. So let me call the corner right over here x equals zero, y equals zero, z equals zero. That's my origin, right? I could say that I'm measuring everything in this room with respect to that coordinate system, with respect to that reference frame. Is that an inertial reference frame? Is this reference frame accelerating? So no, right? The, the room is not accelerating. It's just it's sitting here, right? Uh, that's true unless you're observing from, let's say, outer space and you see the Earth spinning around. Then the room is actually spinning in circular motion. And something in circular motion has an acceleration. Okay, so whether or not we consider this, this room not accelerating depends on sort of how small of an acceleration we're willing to consider. Let me give maybe a more relevant example for you of a coordinate system that's, not, that's accelerating. Um, let's say we've got a train. We'll do lots of examples where we have trains. And uh, let's say you're foolish enough to try to rollerblade onto Caltrain. And you're sitting in, or standing in the aisle when the train starts to go. So when I say starts to go, what that means is the train's going to accelerate. Right, so it starts to either accelerate and begin to move forward, or it may be that it was already moving and it's starting to break, which is an acceleration in the opposite direction as the motion. In either case, what do you think would happen to the person standing there? Yeah, she's wearing skates. They're probably going to go flying into the wall or into one direction or the other. And in this case, if the train starts to go to the right, um, it's going to look like she gets thrown to the back of the train, right? You feel this in your car. When you hit the accelerator in the car, you get thrown to the back of the seat. Well, you're not actually being pushed backwards. What's happening is that, in this case, the train is being pulled to the right while you're just standing still. And because she's got rollerblades, uh, the train's not really going to move her along with it the way it would if she were sitting in the seat. And so here, she's an object that's at rest. Okay, she's at rest relative to the ground, and the ground we're going to treat as an inertial reference frame. It's not accelerating. And so there's no forces acting on her. There's no net force. Gravity's pulling her down, but the floor is pushing her back up. So there's no net force. And then the train starts to move, but that doesn't exert a force on her because she's got these rollerblades. And as a result, she just stays at rest. And so if she stays at rest, her position doesn't change. Uh, the train's position changes, and so from someone inside of the train, it would appear she's getting thrown to the back. Right? And so whether you consider her at rest or not depends on your reference frame. If your reference frame is the ground, then you see she's at rest. She's not moving. But if you're sitting inside of the train, and you're measuring where she is relative to where you are, you know, you might have started in the back of the train, and as the train moves, you're getting closer to her. 
from your perspective, she's getting closer to you, it would appear she's moving. Okay, so Newton's law says because she starts at rest, she stays at rest. And that's what you'd see if you're in a reference frame of the ground, but it's not what you'd see if you're on the train. Okay? Newton's laws are only valid in an inertial reference frame. So they won't make sense if you're sitting inside the train. You'll see her start to move. And it's really not that she's moving, it's that you're moving. Okay? So if we want to use Newton's laws, we need to make sure that we are observing the things going on around us from a position that's in a, a fixed reference frame, one that's not accelerating. You can also see what happens. This maybe is a little more common. You're standing, maybe you're standing on light rail or something and it goes around a turn. Um, and because the train is moving, so are you. And Newton's first law says that if you're moving and there's no outside force acting on you, you're going to keep moving in the same direction with the same speed. Okay, so as the train goes around a turn, what do you do? We just keep going straight, right? And us going straight when the train is curving means we end up bumping into the wall. Okay, so we can understand why when you're on a train and you go on a turn you get thrown to the side. You're not being thrown to the side, you're just moving in a straight line. The train is, is turning around you and the wall of the train is bumping into you. Okay, we can understand that from Newton's first law. Any questions on Newton's first law? Okay, then Newton's second law. Newton's second law is a generalization of the first law. Okay, so it encompasses everything that the first law tells us and tells us a little bit more. Um, and we can sum it up with three letters, F equals MA. You hear people say F equals MA. If there's one equation that you learn in this class, F equals MA, Newton's second law. And specifically, it says the net force exerted on an object. What does net force mean? Someone remind me. Yeah, the sum of all the forces. When you add up all the forces that act on an object, that gives you a value that's equal to m times the acceleration. Okay, so we know what acceleration is. It's how fast the object's velocity is changing with respect to time, and m is a constant of proportionality constant of proportionality that relates how hard an object is being pushed to how fast it accelerates. That's what m is in this equation. It turns out that there's a very common name associated with this constant of proportionality, mass. Before we talk about that, just to make sure you don't miss this, F equals MA. We're going to use that a lot. Okay, so mass is that constant of proportionality between force and acceleration. If you have two objects, one has a large mass, one has a small mass, and you push on them with the same force, which one will have the greater acceleration? Smaller mass. Right? Okay? And the amount of mass something has, there's two ways to interpret that. One is 
you can push on something, measure its acceleration, and the ratio gives you the mass. But it turns out that's, that is dependent on how much stuff is in an object. How much stuff? I mean, how, much, how many electrons, protons, and neutrons would be the three common particles that have mass. Um, so the more stuff is in something, the more mass it has. And the larger force it will take to accelerate it. Okay, so mass is either how much stuff is in something, or it's how resistant an object is to accelerate when pushed on by a force. Okay. It is not how heavy you are, or how heavy a, an object is. Okay, and that's a misconception. Yes? It's related to the amount of matter. So if you counted up the number of protons, each individual proton has the same mass. And so you could say, if each proton has a certain mass and I have a certain number of them, I can figure out the total mass. Okay. Yeah, weight is an amount of force that it takes to cause a given mass to accelerate with an acceleration, excuse me, an acceleration of g. Okay, so a, a weight is a force. A mass is an amount of stuff that's in something. Yeah? So density is the amount of mass per unit volume. Okay, so two objects that have the same mass could have different volumes, in which case they'd have different densities. Okay, so let's just do a couple very simple examples. Um, I don't think I'm even going to work these out on the blackboard, um, just because I want to leave time for a couple other things that we're going to do today. But we saw a couple lectures ago that uh, Dr. Stapp, he was that human crash test dummy who uh, strapped himself to a rocket sled and flew into a lake and slowed down with an acceleration of 46.2 Gs. Okay, so that's an acceleration. If his mass is 70 kilograms, that's 160 pounds or so. If that's his mass, um, we can ask what's the magnitude of the force that slowed him down. How much force slowed him down? Well, force is mass times acceleration. We have a mass. We have an acceleration. So Newton's second law tells me that if I multiply those, I can get a force. And that force is about 32 tons. That's the force that he felt that was slowing him down. Okay, so acceleration is what, the fact that he slows down means there's some acceleration. Okay, that was caused by this amount of force. And the same force acting on someone with less mass would produce more acceleration. Acting on someone with more mass would produce less acceleration. Okay, so let's do another example. Um, Let's say you've got a motorcycle. Motorcycles are pretty lightweight compared to cars. So the mass of a typical motorcycle might be like 200 kilograms. So that's the weight of like two or three people. And it has an engine that can produce 4,000 newtons of force. Okay, so let's assume that this is the maximum force the motorcycle can produce. When you throttle it all the way up, that's the maximum force that you're gonna get causing the motorcycle to accelerate. So let's say 
you calculate the maximum acceleration of the motorcycle. Well, the motorcycle has a mass of 200 kilograms, a force of 4,000 newtons. So we say F equals ma, a force of 4,000 newtons is 200 kilograms times A. So I divide both sides by 200 kilograms. And I get the acceleration is 20 meters per second squared. Is that a large acceleration or small acceleration? What can we compare it to? Yeah, we can compare it to the acceleration due to gravity. And this is about twice the acceleration due to gravity. So how hard do you have to hold on to the motorcycle to avoid falling off of it? To hold on with twice as much force as it would take you just to like dangle from a bar. Does that make sense? Right. So it's not going to be easy to hold on to this motorcycle if you open the throttle all the way. Um, but what happens if we add a rider? Let's add a 100 kilogram rider and let's see what happens to the maximum acceleration that the dealer told us we would, we would get with this motorcycle. Uh, what changes if there's a 100 kilogram rider on this? The mass changes, right. The mass becomes 300 kilograms, right? And then we're dividing by 300 instead of 200 and we end up with a much smaller acceleration. We would accelerate with a maximum acceleration of 13 meters per second squared. If you add another rider on the back, the acceleration is going to decrease even further. So the performance gets worse as you load it up. The same thing happens in cars. It's less noticeable because the car has so much mass to begin with that adding one or two riders has, is less significant. But on a performance motorcycle, you'd really notice that. Okay, so it's an example of how changing the mass will affect the acceleration. It's an example of Newton's second law. Another example of Newton's second law that's very <laughs> relevant is uh, how an astronaut would move in space. Okay, I said mass is not the same thing as weight, okay, which is a little confusing because typically how do you measure your mass? You step on a scale, right? The scale is actually telling you your weight, not your mass. Okay, but it's calibrated, assuming that the force of gravitation um, produces a well. It's calibrated for a specific force, that of gravity. We know that the mass of an object is proportional to its gravitational force. Uh, what would you do if you wanted to measure the mass of an astronaut? You might want to do that because you want to make sure they're not losing too much, we'd say losing weight. You don't want them to lose weight because they're on an astronaut's diet up in space, not getting exercise. But in reality, we talk about astronauts as being weightless, so what does it mean to lose weight? You can talk about losing mass, right? A person can be shrinking, they can be losing muscle tissue, right? But it doesn't really make sense to say losing weight. So how would you measure their mass in space? Yeah, perfect. You push them, so you apply a force, you measure their acceleration, the ratio of those is the mass. 
Okay, so you can't just put them on a scale. If you do that, it would read zero. But you can push on them and see how hard it is to move them. Okay, you, don't, you don't need to be in space to do that. I could have someone sit in this chair. That's not why I have the chair here. But I could have someone sit in the chair, and I could push on it. And I could figure out, without looking, whether it's a, probably whether it's a guy or a girl by how hard it is to push. I could tell something about the mass. It's a large person or a small person. Massive person or not massive. Um, just by how hard it is to push. Right? And you can do the same thing in space where, where weight has a little bit different meaning. Okay? So let's consider an astronaut that's 100 kilograms on Earth. Uh, what is his mass on Earth? Uh, okay, that's obvious. It's 100 kilograms. What is his weight on Earth? We haven't talked about it. How do we calculate a weight from a mass? Okay, so weight, you write it as W. Weight is another name given to the force of gravity. So we might write that as F sub G, the force due to gravity. And an object acted on by gravity, we know will have an acceleration of G if it's in free fall. So if gravity is the only force acting on this, that's the net force, and it has to be equal to its mass times its acceleration. Okay, so typically we say that the weight or the force of gravity is equal to something's mass times g. Okay, and the reason these aren't the same thing, weight and mass are not the same things, partly because they have different units. Right, mass is going to be measured in kilograms. Force is going to be in kilograms times meters per second squared. So one kilogram meter per second squared is equal to one. We call that a Newton, right? So Newton is the guy who provided all the structure for figuring this out. So we reward him by calling this 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 uh, grouping of units, which tells us about a force. Since Newton talked so much about forces and gave us so much information about how forces act, we call that group of units a Newton. Okay, so partly mass and weight have different units, but they're also different because the acceleration due to gravity depends on where you are. We say it's 9.8 meters per second squared, but that's only true near the surface of the Earth. It's different on the Moon, it's different on Mars, and it's different if you're... It's different by very small amounts, whether you're in Denver or in Death Valley. Okay, so um, mass is how much stuff is in you, and that doesn't change. If you were to go to the moon, the amount of stuff in you would not change, but your weight would. How hard you're being pulled on by gravity would change, because the moon has weaker gravity than the Earth. Okay, so let's say we've got an astronaut in space. Um, what is his weight in space? This is kind of a trick question. Yeah, it's force times, well, so his weight is going to be his mass times the acceleration. The acceleration due to gravity is going to be different in space. Oftentimes you hear people talk about space being zero g. It's not really true. Okay, but if you were, if you were infinitely far away from the Earth, so that Earth wasn't pulling on you, 
you could say, well, you'd have no weight. You'd not be pulled down by the Earth. Your weight would be zero. But your mass would still be the same. Right? It wouldn't change how much stuff is in you. Okay, so weight and mass are different in that mass is a constant that depends on how much stuff is in you and weight depends on how hard that stuff is being pulled on by gravity. It would be, well, so how you determine someone's mass in space is you would shake them, essentially, or you'd push them. And when you push them, if you measured how hard you pushed them, and then you measured how fast they accelerated after you pushed them, you could use Newton's second law to relate the force you pushed with to the observed acceleration. The constant of proportionality is their mass. Okay, so that's how you'd measure it in space. And that doesn't change. That doesn't change whether you're in space or on Earth. Right? It's entirely dependent on how much stuff is in you, so as long as that doesn't change, your mass doesn't change. Yes? Is it force or acceleration? Yeah, it's net. So if I push on you, but there's, you're standing against the wall, the wall pushes back, and you're not going to accelerate into the wall. Okay, so that's Newton's second law. I said there were three laws. Okay, so Newton's third law, it's a little less mathematical. And we tend not to use it to like solve problems, but it's a really important law to help us set up certain problems. So a lot of times what happens is people kind of forget about this because they're not using it as like the main part of solving problems. And then all of a sudden you get asked a question about it or a question where this is relevant. People struggle with this. So um, Newton's third law, in words it says that every force has an equal and opposite force acting or an action-reaction pair, sometimes it's called. If I exert a force on something, that thing has to exert a force back on me. Another way of saying that. And we write it mathematically as force A sub B. That would mean the force that object A exerts on object B. That's going to be our shorthand notation. That has to be equal and opposite the force that object B exerts on object A. So let me show you some examples of action-reaction pairs. Uh, let's take the case of an apple sitting on a table. The apple is being, what forces are acting on the apple? The normal force and gravity. Gravity is the force that's pulling it down. Right? The normal force, that just means the force that the table exerts to push it up. Right? It doesn't fall down because the table's there. So the table must be pushing it up. Okay, so if gravity is pulling it down, what is the equal and opposite reaction force? Okay, if you answered the normal force of the table, that's not right. Well, I say gravity is pulling the apple down. What is causing gravity? Yeah, there's, some, there's a big mass underneath this apple pulling on it. What is that really big mass? The Earth. Yeah, the Earth is pulling on the apple is actually what's happening. We say gravity is pulling on the apple, but it's really the Earth is pulling on the apple. 
through the gravitational force. So if the Earth pulls on the apple, what does the apple do to the Earth? It pulls on it. Okay. So the apple pulls on the Earth just as hard as the Earth pulls on the apple. So why is it? I don't have any apples. I didn't plan very well. Why is it if I take an object, uh, this eraser, it's being pulled down by the Earth, so evidently the Earth is being pulled up by the eraser. When I drop this, why do we see the eraser go down rather than the Earth go up? It has smaller mass, right? So if the same force is acting on the Earth as is acting on this eraser, the acceleration of the eraser will be much larger than that of the Earth. Right? Because the Earth has a much bigger mass, so it has less acceleration. In fact, the mass of the Earth is so large that we treat it as if it's not accelerating at all when acted on by this, the weight of this eraser. Um, okay, so the table is pushing up on the apple. That's a force. What is the equal and opposite force there? The apple pushing on the table. Right? So if the table pushes on the apple, the apple pushes on the table. Right? And it does. If you replace the table with your hand and you put your hand out and set an apple there, you'll feel the apple push on your hand. Okay? So sometimes the things that seem like the obvious, uh, the obvious action-reaction pairs are not. Questions? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And it's important for certain experiments. Um, there's an experiment that I work on called LISA. It's a laser interferometer space antenna. And it has a test mass that's supposed to be floating freely in space. And one of the purposes of this is to measure how the trajectory of this mass moves around. It's, it's hypothesized that its motion will be affected by the gravitational signature of the Big Bang, black hole collisions, uh, supernova, some interesting things that we want to study. So we want to see how this mass moves around under the influence of those different things. Well, in reality, a mass floating around in space far away from the Earth actually gets pushed on by things like particle flux from the sun. It's called the solar wind. If you're into sci-fi, you've probably heard of solar sails and such propelling spacecraft. Well, there's all these particles coming from the sun, and it's going to push on it and move it, and that's not what we want to measure. So we put another, like a shield around it, a spacecraft that circles it, that blocks all that solar wind so that the thing on the inside is free. Well, we have to be very careful that the mass distribution of the thing around it is symmetric. Because if it's not, if, if the mass distribution is asymmetric, those two masses will attract each other. And the surrounding shield will actually be pulled and collide eventually with the center mass. So there are examples where the acceleration of the two objects are comparable. Um, let's do a couple demonstrations. And for this, I think I need, uh, I'll need three volunteers. So I'll start with one volunteer for the first demonstration. If I don't get a volunteer, I'll just call a name. Sam? Sam? Yeah, come on up. Okay, Sam is going to demonstrate Newton's first law. Can someone remind me what Newton's first law is? Yeah, so I heard a couple things. Object in motion will stay in motion, or an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted on by an outside force. So this vase is an object that's at rest, 
And I'm in a nice, I'm going to consider this an inertial reference frame that I'm standing in. So it's not being pushed one way or another. And underneath it, I've got a silk tablecloth. And I'm going to have Sam remove the tablecloth very rapidly. Right, you've probably all seen this. Um, and the idea is that the tablecloth can't really exert much force on the vase because it's, it's, it's down here. Um, there's not much friction between them. So there's very little interaction. So essentially, this vase is at rest and it's not experiencing any outside forces. So what should happen when the tablecloth moves out? What should happen to the vase? It should just stay there. If there's no, no external forces acting on it, it should just stay there. So do it swiftly. If you do it slowly, then the friction has more of a chance to act. Pull it hard. <laughs> okay, well, you probably noticed two things. One is it didn't fall off the table, and the other is it's uh, just plexiglass. Okay, let's, uh, let's try that one more. Do you want to try it one more time, Sam? See if you can perfect this. Thank you. Okay, so that was Newton's first law. The object was at rest, so the fact that there were other things around it moving doesn't mean the object itself is going to move. Okay? And in terms of Newton's laws and thinking what we call thinking Newtonianly, it makes sense. But without the structure of Newton's laws, it's very easy to think, well, if the tablecloth's moving this way, so will this. Okay, so it's an example of sort of our intuition maybe being wrong. Okay, the next demonstration needs two people. So Chris, is it Chris? And I need one more. Someone from the back would be much appreciated. Okay, what's your name? Logan? Come on up. You guys get to sit in the chairs. And you're going to play tug of war. Um, so these chairs are, let me take the rope for a moment. These chairs are on casters, meaning they roll. Right. They roll pretty easily. These aren't your highest quality wheels. But the idea is I want Chris, I want Logan to pull Chris over to him. Okay? So your feet are going to be up. So you want to put your feet onto the uh, either on the chair or on the any any way so that they're not on the floor, both of you. And you might as well start as far apart as possible. So no, I want both of you to have your feet up. And so the, the challenge is for Logan to pull Chris to Logan. So go for it. Okay. So Chris, uh, Logan was doing all of the pulling, right? Chris was just standing there. Why is it Chris didn't move that way? If Logan is pulling the rope this way, what is the rope doing to Logan? It's pulling him that way. So even though we typically would think of him pulling on the rope, Newton's third law says really then the rope has to pull on him by an equal amount. Okay, so this time let's have Chris pull Logan over. Okay, so Logan's moving towards Chris. You notice Chris actually also moved towards Logan. So even though Chris was the one pulling this time, he still moves. The fact that Logan is just holding the rope doesn't mean that he's not going to move. Um, why did Logan accelerate faster than Chris? 
Logan's mass is less than that of Chris. It's just reality. That's not, <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of. Hold on, before you go, let's see what happens if you both pull. Before you do that, what do you think will happen if they both pull? Let's find out. Go ahead. <laughs> the exact same thing happens. It just happens twice as fast. Thank you. So, yes. Okay, so it, it turns out it doesn't matter whether you're doing this or whether you're just holding the rope. Either way, you're pulling on it. Right? If you weren't pulling on the rope, it would just slide out through your fingers. Okay? So our, our, our idea of what it means to pull on something maybe needs to be changed a little bit. We're pulling on the string regardless of whether we're actively reeling it in or whether we're just holding on to it. Okay? And Newton's third law says that as long as if you're pulling on the rope, the rope's pulling on you. Okay? And the magnitude is the same. Okay, so at this point, we're going to use the clickers. So um, if you've used the clickers, get rid of that. So the answer is choice what, one. No, no, it's ch choice three. The answer is choice three. Okay, so I'm gonna don't have quite a time to get to the last few. Couple points of summary. Objects, we say an object in equilibrium, what that means is it doesn't accelerate, the forces on it balance. That's due to Newton's first law. Newton's second law tells us how much an object accelerates if there is a net force. Okay, so if the forces that act on something don't balance and there's a net force pushing it in one direction or the other, you can figure out how much it accelerates given that net force. Or by measuring how much it accelerates, we can find the net force. Anytime an object pushes on something, that something pushes back. That's Newton's third law. Okay, we have to understand these in order for the rest of the class to make sense. That's why today was entirely conceptual. Um, we didn't really get to the point where I think this is cemented in, so we're just gonna have to keep working on these concepts as we do problems that use them. Um, but let's just, uh, Go over a few terms we introduced today, so at least the terminology won't be an issue going forward. Uh, Newton's laws, there's three of them, right? So we're going to have to use those three. What's the one with the equation that's really important? The second, what's the equation? Force is mass times acceleration. Uh, Newton's laws are valid in an inertial reference frame. What does that mean? It means there's no acceleration. You, you can only apply these laws if you're, if you're not accelerating. If you're watching what's going on and you're trying to describe what's going on, it only works if you're not accelerating. Okay, and then three different terms we, we learned. Force is what pushes or pulls on an object. Mass is how much stuff is in an object. And it tells me for a given force how much it accelerates. And then a Newton is our unit of force or SI unit of force. Okay, I will see you uh, then Wednesday, and we will do some examples using these laws. Yeah, please turn in your clickers.